So Hebrews chapter six, the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Um, so we want to look at the pillars of the doctrine, right? We've seen the general foundation of the doctrine, which is that the doctrine is based on a life. If you don't have access to that life, everything else we are going to talk about is not for you. It's not going to make sense to you. It's not going to be efficacious for you. The foundation for everything else we're going to talk about is the life. You need to begin with the life, right? We said last week that to you, you cannot change a man by educating his mind or his soul. No, you need to adjust the life within him. And then everything else can be built on top of that. So now we're seeing the pillars of this doctrine. So Nancy, can you read for us verse one and verse two of Hebrews six? We have a few scriptures to read today. Okay, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. Although the writer adds a clause in verse 3, this we will do if God permits. Right? So he's saying that the problem that the church is writing to is having is that they, they don't seem to be able to go beyond the basics of the life of Christ, right? Which is what we did, like essentially the things that we discussed last week and the things that he adds on here. They don't seem to be able to go beyond the fact that Christ died for me. I am now included in Christ. Hallelujah, praise God. I'm rejoicing and waiting for the, for the rapture or for the second coming or for the next epoch event of, of, of human history. They don't seem to be able to go beyond that point. And if you know about Christian growth and maturity, you realize that being lukewarm in Jesus's eyes is equal to regression because the spirit of God is always moving forward in the depth of revelation that he wants to bring us into. So in Jesus' eyes, this, this church, this Hebrew church was regressing, even though in their eyes, they simply just stayed on the same platform. So this was their problem, right? They couldn't seem to go beyond the foundation. But we said that the reason why we are revisiting the foundation is that in our generation, we have the opposite problem which is that we are building a lot of things without the foundation. In fact, in a sense, some of the questions that we have just addressed before this, before we kicked off this study are some of the relics, right? That, that um, are some of the relics of our current experience of trying to build certain things without the right foundation. Because what's going to happen is that you might end up with a works-based Christianity, a doing-based Christianity, and you may not even know the basis, the foundation for what you are doing. And it will become like, like a drag for you inevitably. There's so much that God wants to bring us to. But before he does that, he will, he will ensure that we are grounded in the foundation, that we are rooted in the foundation, that the, that the base of our convictions right, are held strongly. Because if you have even that, just that, then that's enough for God to do greater mighty works through you, just the foundation. That's enough. 
So we're going to be looking at the principles of the doctrine of Christ. And you can see here that the first principle is repentance from dead works. So just for the sake of the semantics, so that you can see that these are this is one doctrine, but many principles in the King James of this of Hebrews chapter 6, it says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. So it is one doctrine, like we said, it's singular, but it has principles, right? It has, um, and of course, the word principle and doctrine and teaching are interchangeable. So you're going to see, for example, the doctrine of baptisms. Um, but the idea is that is that it is one whole that is called the doctrine of Christ, and then there are pillars of that doctrine. So that the way to test the legitimacy of your faith, the authenticity of your faith, or the faith of or the faith of anyone who's preaching Christ, is to check for the presence of these pillars. And we said that oftentimes what we consider to be our biggest issues that we feel need the most complex solutions, we, we can actually find their antidote in one of these pillars missing if we become grounded. And that's my prayer, my desire, right? That we will be so grounded in these principles that um, there will be a sure foundation for everything else in our lives. Now, the first of these principles is repentance from dead works. This is where it begins. This is the first pillar that you raise on the doctrine of Christ, right? Repentance from dead works. So obviously we need to define what repentance is and what dead works is and why it is necessary to repent from dead works. But what do you think about it? What's your knowledge on this? What is repentance and what is repentance from dead works? I would like to hear your thoughts. I think repentance means, you know, to turn away from what you're doing to, you know, something else. Stop what you're doing and then face something else. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Okay. That's the classic Greek definition, right? To change your mind, to turn your mind. Repentance is acknowledge that you've done wrong. Okay. So then why repentance from dead works? What's or what are you repenting from when we say repentance from dead works? Those sins that pertain to the flesh, I think. What makes them dead? The flesh is dead already. Uh, They're dead in Christ. <laughs> I have no idea, Joshua. This is really the foundation that I did not pick up. Sorry. No, I, I, it's good that we, we hear what, people, what everybody thinks, you know, because... Um, that will help us know how to build, right? Um, yeah, your answer was not actually too far away, but I want us to begin from the beginning, right? Which is the first place you see repentance mentioned in the New Testament, uh, Matthew chapter three. So just stay with us. We're trying to define repentance. What is, what is it? Why is it necessary? And what does it mean to repent from dead works? And what are those dead works, right? So the first place you read about repentance in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 3. Of course, you can check Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3 or 4, I think. Essentially, the synoptic gospels, but we, we want to use Matthew's account, right? Nancy, can you read for us from verse 1 to verse 12? 
please, I'd like you to follow the reading because the reading will explain a lot more to you as well, okay? Okay, to what verse, please? Verse 12. 12, okay. Matthew 3 from verse 1 to 12. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Sorry, Nancy. Let, let me switch this to New King James so you don't chew your tongue. Huh? All right. Yeah. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do nothing to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat, his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Nancy. So there's so much in this verse these verses that we've read. And so because of our time, I would like to run a bit, okay? So in those days, John the Baptist, so we are introduced to an actor in history. John the Baptist came preaching. This was an actor that showed up that could not be traced to any of the usual prophetic lines in Israel. But there was something unusual about what he was preaching. He was saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there, there is a reason why you need to repent, right? This is one of the things that is missing in our traditional Greek um, definition of repentance. Remember, our traditional Greek definition says repentance means to acknowledge that you're wrong or to change your mind, right? But at best, that definition is only halfway to the end of what repentance is. One of the things that is missing in repentance, in that definition, is that there is a reason for repentance. We don't repent arbitrarily, right? We re the repentance that is a pillar of the doctrine of Christ is tied to the appearance of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It says repent, not because um, I, I, I like seeing people repent, but because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, 
what is coming, what is at stake is a kingdom. It's not a democracy. It's not an administrative setup. It is a kingdom, right? So the reason why you ask to repent is because of the kingdom. Now, the question then is what is at the heart of the kingdom that makes repentance necessary? And that's what we're going to trace, right? At the heart of the kingdom of God is the throne of God. If you take a tour to heaven, just like John did in Revelations, in Revelation, and you appear in heaven, for example, the first thing you will see, which was the first thing that John saw, is the throne. You know, you don't need to book a flight to go to heaven. You can, you, you, you can journey in prayer in your bedroom. And if you do appear in the spirit and God opens your eyes, the first thing you're going to see is that the entire universe is governed by a throne. You are going to realize that most things are not as in, do not have, most things on earth do not have the level of importance to which we ascribe to them because there is a throne. And scripture, um, especially the Old Testament, is littered with, with times when earthly kings forgot about that throne and the impact it had upon their government. So in the kingdom of God, there is a throne. Now, if, if all there was was a throne, then you'd be like, okay, a throne. So a throne means that there is a king, right? But what's so significant about the throne? Well, what is significant about the throne is the one who sits on the throne and the will of the one who sits on the throne. So those are the two things to note about the kingdom, right? That the center of the kingdom is the throne of God. And at the center of the throne of God is the will of God or the purpose of God, right? Everything revolves around that throne. Everything in the universe, everything in your life revolves around that throne. At the end of the age, everything is going to report to that throne. Everything is going to bow to that throne. And it is by the will of that of God who sits on the throne that everything is sustained. The reason why we have why we have earth today is because of the will of God. The reason why you, you are born again and you are in this Bible study today is because of the will of God, right? Um, we are told in scripture that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, not of the will of man, right? Your parents didn't will for you to be born again. If that was all that was involved, you wouldn't have been born again. The reason you're born again is that there is a will in heaven that sustains it, that position. It means that the same occupant of that throne has a will for your life, has a will for your family, has a will for the earth at large. So that the kingdom of God, at the heart of the kingdom of God is the throne of God. And at the heart of that throne is the will of God. Now, if the will of God is central to how the universe runs, it means that the principle that is introduced by the existence of the will of God is the principle of alignment, right? So you can say that the will of God is the tide that moves, that moves all of creation through history. If you decide to swim against the will of God, you are essentially swimming against the tide. So if there is a throne, it introduces the principle of accountability. It means that everything that comes into your hand on the earth you're going to give account of it to that throne. It also introduces a principle of um, alignment, 
because the throne has a perspective and it is possible for you to be disaligned with the will, with the perspective of that throne. So repentance is occasioned anytime we lose alignment with the will of that throne. But this is not where we're going with our definition of repentance. I just wanted to point out why repentance is tied to the kingdom of heaven. So you see that there is a throne, there is a will of God, and there is a need for alignment. So John is saying to his audience, repent, because that throne has decided to come into the earth. And <laughs> if that throne decides to come into the earth, it means that it wants to establish its own civilization in the earth. Look at what verse 3 says. He says, John wasn't actually without a reference. John was spoken about in the prophecy of Isaiah. And this speaking of Isaiah validated the ministry of John. He says, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, this is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, which if you have time to read, you would see that there's going to be a renovation of the landscape when the kingdom comes. It says that every high thing shall be brought low, right? And every low thing shall be brought high. There is going to be a, a reshaping of things, a renovation of things when the kingdom comes. And the reason that happens is that the kingdom of God has a peculiar civilization. Please don't get lost in what I'm saying. Just stay with me. Eh? We are headed somewhere. And the Lord will help us to arrive there. The kingdom of God has a peculiar civilization that it, that it imposes wherever it goes. Right? In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul tells us that the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but the kingdom of God is in righteousness, is in peace, and is in joy in the Holy Ghost. So everywhere the kingdom of God invades, it comes with righteousness, that is justice and equity. It comes with peace and it comes with joy in the Holy Ghost. You know, when Israel asks God for a king, they, they quickly realize that none of the kings they could get could fulfill this, this criteria. And in a sense, the whole world is learning that lesson, right? That's why you can have the United Nations peacekeeping mission, for example. You can even have the United Nations itself that primarily exists to prevent more world wars and more civil wars. And we've seen how year after year they drastically fail at that objective because <laughs> it takes a certain kind of kingdom to establish that kind of civilization. And you cannot have peace without righteousness, right? There has to be justice and equity. There has to be judgment, right? Fairness in that sense, equity. It is on the basis of righteousness that peace can now be established. So I'm sorry to break the news, but, but the nations will not know peace until, until the full unveiling of that kingdom because they do not have the capacity to rule by true righteousness, right? which is judgment and equity. But you see, it's not only righteousness and peace. The product of righteousness and peace, Paul says in Romans 14, is going to be joy in the Holy Ghost. So the, the, the civilization that the kingdom of God brings into a domain produces joy. And you know that in our generation, in, in all true human history, right, um, 
there is a quest for personal satisfaction, personal um, um, trying to find meaning in life, which is which we do through our ambition, through our hobbies, through whatever it is. There is a level of joy that we can never experience because that level is, 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 is kept only for the kingdom of God. Now, for God to establish such a civilization, it requires power and authority because if righteousness is the first pillar of the kingdom, then God needs to exercise his authority. He needs to exercise his power in judgment, right? In order to establish righteousness. If the earth is going to be righteous, God will need to judge. I think we, we established this very clearly in the book of Jude when we looked at spiritual judgment. Without God's judgment, righteousness cannot be in the earth. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 26 that when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the earth will learn righteousness. And so the thing that occasions repentance as it relates to the kingdom is if the kingdom is coming, if God has an intention to establish his civilization upon the earth, and if he's going to begin that process by judgment, then the question John the Baptist is asking his audience is, on what side of the judgment do you want to be on? The kingdom is coming. And that's why you see all the pictures of baptizing you with fire. He has his winnowing fan in his hand. And the person who is being anticipated, the one who's coming, is as though his coming is going to be terrible for many. And that's why the voice of one cries out in the wilderness and says, repent. Someone, the one who is Lord of the universe is coming and he's coming with blazing holiness. He's coming with judgment. And the thing with the judgment of God is that Paul tells us in Romans chapter two, right? That the judgment of God is without partiality. And I think we've seen this point several times that the Bible says that the judgment of God is severe, meaning that it is, it is decisive. God does not think, mm, should I, should I not? <laughs> the judgment of God is clear. You know, it's like a two-edged sword that rightly divides to the, to, the, to the bone and marrow and all of that. God is not confused about his opinion about anything, even though many of us may be confused about God's opinion about different things. Right? The judgment of God is severe. If you and I are to face that judgment, 99.9% will not be enough. You will have to be righteous to the very end to avoid the full weight of justice. Because naturally, that's how justice works. That's how the balances of justice work. You, you don't go to the court of law and tell them that you, you committed a heinous crime, but the other 99.9% .9 of your life is good. At the very best, the very best that can end you is a reduced sentence, but the full weight of the law will still come upon you because the law is like that beautiful necklace that if you cut it on one end, you destroy everything. So the kingdom is coming, the king is coming, and he's coming to establish on the earth righteousness, peace, and joy, but he needs to judge. So the question is, on what side of that judgment do you want to land on? So if it's clear that none of us can be righteous by ourselves, right? Like our righteousness is as filthy rights, and John the Baptist audience would have known this. How can we then... Um, be righteous before the all-righteous God. 
The only way that is possible is by the principle of substitution. Because what you're going to ask is, what does baptism right, have to do with the fact that one has to repent? Why is repentance in terms of um, just confessing my sins not enough? So he was giving them a picture that none of us can stand the divine justice of the king when he comes. But because God still desires a relationship with us, God <laughs> doesn't want to have a kingdom where there are no humans in it just because nobody was perfect enough. What he does is that he offers his grace. And the contract of grace is such that you have to accept the position of God's justice system concerning you, that you are guilty. And when you accept that position, you accept God's offer of redemption through the substitution of Christ. So the way God secured our salvation is that he poured out his wrath, the full wrath of God, he poured it out on his son on the cross. And like we said last week, when the scales of justice were weighed, it was found that Jesus did not die for his own sin. And what that meant in the realm of the spirit was that his blood was now available to take care of the sins of many, right? So that if you're going to be righteous before God, if you're going to become part of this kingdom and be excluded from the wrath that is to come, you have to accept that um, <laughs> Christ took my place. And I want to, he, he, he identified himself with me. So now I need to identify myself with him. And that's what baptism symbolizes, right? That yes, I repent of my sins and there's even a likelihood that I may do it tomorrow. But, but by this baptism, I identify with the substitutionary work of the one who is to come. I, I identify with his work for me on the cross, that his work is enough for me. Right now, this is where the definition of dead works begin to come in because the context in which this message was being delivered was a Jewish context, which is probably the most difficult context in which to deliver such a message, right? Because the Jews had a history with the same God that John the Baptist was talking about, and they could point to Abraham as their father, and they could point to the law of Moses and say, but this this method of substitution, right, that you are proposing now, it's not exactly what God presented to us in the Old Testament. He, he, <laughs> and, and he called us sons of Abraham. And there are many things that accrue to us because we are sons of Abraham. Moreover, he gave us the law, you know, so that we can progressively improve our moral character. But we know that as sons of Abraham, we are fine. If we, if we bring our bulls and our rams and just make sure that we keep um, the most important ordinances of the Lord, then we should, we should be good, right? And that is where we find the definition of dead works, that dead works are anything that we do to earn our salvation before God, right? Hebrews has a very clear definition for this and it calls it dead works. The reason he calls it dead works is that their origin, any, anytime you see expressions like dead works, he's referring to the origin of these works and the, and the destiny <laughs> of this work. So their origin is in, is in death, it's in, it's in the fallen man, and their destiny is that they are going to lead to destruction. Because no man can be justified before God based on their ancestry, which is what the Jews were holding on to, 
right, or based on their self-righteousness, which is what some of the Jews were also holding on to that. So we keep we keep like 80% of God's laws. I mean, you cannot be that mad. 80% is past mark. <laughs> Any such attempt to be justified before God based on the works of the law is classified as dead works. And if you're going to come into the experience of the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to experience the righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees, which Jesus says that if your righteousness is not greater than that one, you cannot um, partake of this kingdom. If you're going to experience all of that, you have to begin from the place of substitution. You have to repent and say, I cannot save myself. I cannot save myself from the wrath of God. You know, I cannot save myself from the wrath that is to come. That's what John says to the Pharisees. He says, who has warned you? Right, to flee the wrath that is to come. So the reason they need to repent is because there is a wrath that is to come. It is when we repent that, that God has the legal right to open up the doors of the kingdom to us, to introduce us to the life of the kingdom. And it is the life of that kingdom that then produces what is referred to here as the fruits worthy of repentance. Okay. So that's an overview of what's going on in this scripture. So you can see now that repentance is not merely changing your mind, right? It is changing your mind because of the light of God. There is a trigger for repentance. Something triggers repentance. You don't, you don't repent arbitrarily. Maybe you have even tried it before, right? I don't know if, you, if you're like me and you have done something and you're like, oh God, I'm really, really sorry, you know? And then <laughs> after that, your confession round, the very next minute, when you're tempted with the exact same thing, you fall into it. Do you see that what was missing in your repentance in quotes was the trigger of repentance. Repentance does not begin with any of us, right? Repentance is triggered by the light that God supplies to us. It is when we see the perspective of the kingdom, we see the perspective of the will of God, and God actually allows us to see it. That's when the process of repentance begins. The Bible says that it is in his light. Oh, we are going to expand on this a bit shortly. But the Bible says it is in his light that we see light. So repentance cannot happen outside of the Holy Ghost. Because he's the one who, who brings in light so that we can truly repent. And the beautiful thing about the light of God is that the light of God does not just illuminate our conscience and show us that mm, you are wrong. But the light of God also energizes us, right? So that if you true, if it is true that you come into the light of God, you will not just have a new perspective, you're going to have the energy to to run in the direction of that, of that perspective. That's why John says in verse 8, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. So if, it, if, you, if, you, if you're not bearing fruits worthy of repentance, the process of repentance has not really happened because the thing that triggers repentance has not yet come into your space, which is the light of God. Okay. 
let me pause there because I know I've said quite a bit, right? To to hear your thoughts on this. Um, based on what you have said, how would you define repentance? How do you understand it now? Right. So before now, and I just thought it was turning away from um what you were doing or yeah, what you were doing before to something else. But you know, repentance from you, you know, what you said so far means that it's triggered by something, and that is the awareness that um we are not sufficient in ourselves and that we need God. Oh not no, not 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 that we need God, but that God's wrath is at hand and we need to turn to the light of God or something like that. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's and that's the missing piece in our regular definition, the trigger. The trigger. Okay, the also that repentance. Um some it says something about it being as it motivates or something, it keeps you running. So that if you repented, but then you don't turn away or something like that, then it means that true repentance has not happened. I yes. Yes, it means that you, you don't have the complete cycle yet. You don't have the trigger. And I can show you, we, we will look at the triggers of repentance, like the sources of light, as it were. Right? What we said is that repentance happens when God shines his light. And he can shine his light on any number of issues in our lives. He can shine his light on any number of issues in scripture. For example, he can shine his light based on what you said, Stephanie, right? That we are not sufficient. He can come and reveal that to you. And when you behold that perspective, you repent of your attempt at self-sufficiency. In the absence of the light of the kingdom, repentance cannot happen. Stephanie, your hand is up. I, I had a certain conversation with someone and the person mm -hmm. said something like, um, how was the service? And I said it was okay, but I just did not understand um, what was going on. Because at that point in time, the man of God that spoke, spoke about, you know, how God turned him from um, a, a poor man to a rich man. And, you know, <laughs> he has a lot of houses now. No, seriously, this was a service. He has a lot of houses now and it was good. And at some point, this man of God started crying and crying. And everybody in church, they're crying. And I was wondering what's going on, why am I not crying? But then the thing, what happened was after the service, after the message, he now goes, oh yeah. And then he said, God will give you long life and he will make you wealthy and stuff like that. And then he now goes, if you want to give your life to Christ, can I see your hands up? So I'm wondering, if you want to repent. So I'm just wondering, going through that um, route, towards you know rip, you know getting repentance is that would you say that that is not that's not going to bring about that full circle of you know repentance mm -hmm. since the trigger yeah. basically is wealth the trigger is long life so it's like is that enough to you know must it be about the wrath that is to come that no. would be mm -hmm. no so we just to make that clear, the trigger for repentance is not the wrath of God, but the light of God, right? So in, in the case of the doctrine of Christ, what the light of God comes to do is that it comes to 
reveal the wrath that is to come. And that's a prerequisite for coming into Christ. If 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 the light in quote you received was telling you about finances, you know, we've handled this topic before that it's possible to have false converts, right? People who are converted because they said a prayer, but whom Jesus cannot attest to. Right? Because remember that the basis for repentance is substitution, right? Or rather, the basis for the kingdom is substitution. If God is going to establish his kingdom, he's going to do so first by judgment. Right? This principle is established all through scripture. And John is crying out, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. The reason you need to repent is that you cannot save yourself. So if I preach a gospel that does not bring you to the place where you realize that the wrath of God is coming and you cannot save yourself from that wrath, then I didn't preach the gospel to you. You know, Paul says that when I came to the Corinthians, I, I, I made up my mind not to be smart because I didn't want your faith to, to rest in the wisdom of man, to rest in the experience of man. But I wanted you to see the power of God in Christ, displayed in Christ and what he accomplished in Christ because that was sufficient foundation to establish your faith. So the trigger for repentance is the light of God. In the case of the doctrine of Christ, the light that needs to dawn on you is the light of the wrath of God that is coming. Right? That's, that's the correct way to come into the kingdom, to accept that I'm, the only thing I deserve is the wrath of God, but God has made provision, right? And I can come into his kingdom. If not, you, you cannot truly repent. I mean, think about it, right? What are you repenting about if there is no wrath to come? Right? What are you repenting for if there is no wrath to come? Does that make sense, Stephanie? Yeah, it makes sense. It's just, you know, like when we're going for evangelism, we just hear things like any which way, as long as they say the sinner's prayer, that's all we need. And then you take down their number and then you follow them up, you know? Yeah. So that was the, the whole, this whole trigger thing is coming now, but prior to that, as in my knowledge was just make them say the sinner's prayer and then we can yeah. move on from there. <laughs> when we did the book of James, James told us that even the demons believe, right? And they tremble. The reason they believe but cannot be saved is that God cannot grant them repentance. The sin that they committed, they committed it in eternity. And in eternity, there's no room for repentance. Repentance is a possibility that is only available in time. So that even though they believed on him, God didn't give them the gift of repentance, right? Um, so that's, I guess, the next thing we're going to see, which is the sources of light, right? How does God bring us light um, that eventually leads to repentance? We have defined repentance, right? Repentance is a sovereign activity of the Spirit of God when he brings us light, causing us to change our direction, right? Causing us to occasionally change. That's repentance. Repentance must have a trigger for it to be repentance. And in the doctrine of Christ, the trigger for repentance is the light of God that shines. So that if you're struggling, if you're, if you're struggling with anything, 
you know, and you find yourself repenting over and over again, we're going to show you how to get over that. Sami has a question in the chat that says, please throw a little light on the concept of them sinning in eternity. Okay, this can take us off track a bit. Um, so, but I'll just give a very quick summary of what I was saying is that when we look at the book of Jude, you remember the Bible talked about the angels that did not keep their first estate, right? And these fallen angels are, are what you have as, as demons today and as the minions of Satan. Um, they did not keep their first estate and they, the sin they committed was in eternity. Now, time is what creates the opportunity for change and reversal. In the eternal realm, every, anything you do in the eternal realm is stamped permanently on that realm. It's not a, it's not a realm of, of time, right? It's not a realm of perpetual continuum. You know, time creates a lot of possibilities for God. That's why before Adam could eat of the tree of life, God had to chase him out of the garden because if he had eaten of the tree of life, he would have received eternal life and his condition would have been permanent. So in eternity, anything that happens there is stamped there permanently. That's why it's only on this side of eternity that repentance is a possibility, right? When you when this kingdom eventually comes and you stand before the throne of God, repentance will no longer be a possibility. So if, okay, so if the light of God is the trigger for repentance, what are the sources of this light? Now, it's very important for you to note the, the difference here. The light of God is the trigger, and that trigger is supposed to lead us to true repentance. So that if you think you're repenting or things are not changing, then maybe all you're doing is that you are maybe just only engaging with the trigger, but you're not really repented, or you're, you're not even engaging with the right trigger at all. So because of our time, very quickly, there are about four triggers I've identified here. Let's see how many we can take. The first trigger for the light of God, right? The first source, rather, of the light of God is spirit-filled preaching of the word of God. When you sit under spirit-filled preaching of the word of God, it is you, you are bound to encounter the light of God that can lead you to repentance. So look at verse 7 of Matthew chapter 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who, who, so who, John does not believe that these people can arrive at this place of repentance without a who involved, right? Who warned you to flee from the world that is to come? We don't have time, but we would have seen how, how, um, unlikely it was that Pharisees and Sadducees would leave the comfort of their synagogues and their offices in the synagogues and the position of authority they had in the synagogue and search for a man in animal clothes in the wilderness. Of course, in a sense, they, they didn't really have an option because the guy had taken most of their audience away, right? But it, we, we do know that some of them actually came to repent. Even some of the soldiers came to repent. The reason is that God found a man's voice and he was able to channel his light. There, there, there are ministers that you can sit under and the light of God will down on your spirit. And when that light of God downs on your spirit, it can then lead you to repentance. Because you can be reading something all your life, 
You can be hearing something all your life from a specific source, but until God decides to, to, to beam light to a particular person, it never comes to you as a perspective of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, right, on the day of Pentecost, remember, after Peter had given that message that was inspired by the Spirit, the Bible says that now when they heard this, they were caught to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And now, remember that's what, what, what Peter was doing in this sermon, exegetically, was that he was simply quoting the, the same Old Testament that they were very familiar with. He was quoting it back to them and simply just pointing out that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of a lot of those prophecies. But <laughs> something beyond the letter was going on in that activity. So that one of the ways that God brings us light is when we sit under spirit-filled teaching. Now, the second way that God brings us light is by what Paul refers to as godly sorrow. Right, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I think, um, 2 Corinthians 7, this Corinthian church had all kinds of issues. I mean, in a sense, thank God they had those issues because it's, it's in addressing those issues that Paul told us some of the big things about faith. But essentially, they were having a particular issue that was not even to be mentioned amongst unbelievers um, of, of sexual infidelity. And Paul had written to them in a previous letter to essentially rebuke them. So this was spirit-filled preaching in that sense, to rebuke them. Um, and he's now writing about the outcome of that. Right? So maybe we should read from verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. So you can see the trigger, right? There's a trigger for repentance. Your sorrow led to repentance. Because some people try to convince you that in Christ, you know, you don't, anything that makes you feel bad is condemnation. <laughs> There's therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So even when you fall into iniquity, just, just laugh it up and just speak in tongues and move on with your life. It says that the trigger that God used to bring you to repentance was something in your emotions. Sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. Of course, this is the delineation of the kind of sorrow that is productive. It's important for us to lay the balance that many kinds of sorrows are not productive, including the sorrow that Satan brings after you have repented and God has cleansed you, but he still brings sorrow. <laughs> that one is ungodly. It's not fruitful. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance. Do you see cause and effect, trigger and repentance? So godly sorrow produces repentance. So, so, so the next time the spirit of God is grieved in your heart and he says, and, and, he's, and he's pressing you on a particular thing and saying, no, 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 that is not how to talk. That is not how to behave. That's not how to look. And then you now hear that a man of God was, was begging God, oh, I'm sorry for three days. <laughs> it's not legalism. It's godly sorrow. Because 
if you engage what you're supposed to do with godly sorrow is that you're supposed to engage it correctly so that you can arrive at repentance it's, so it's not the kind of thing that you come to prayer and say oh god we want to pray now for our needs so and i'm just recapping my childhood in a sense you know <laughs> so god if we have sinned against you in any way in any way there are so many things wrong in that in that expression right you know if we have sinned against you <laughs> and then in any way please forgive us and then we now have a false sense of peace and then we now pray for the thing we want to pray for right you see you can already tell that something is missing from that equation there's like the trigger is missing there's no sorrow that's missing so even though you have said said that prayer if you're like me, you realize that you keep saying it almost every day because you keep going back to the same things until you engage productively with godly sorrow until it leads you to repentance. Godly sorrow can make you take a fast. You know, godly sorrow can make you discipline your body until it leads you to repentance. If you've, if you've fallen into something before that you shouldn't fall into before and the Holy Spirit disciplines you. It produces a kind of strictness about your life that is that, in fact, people around you would, would misunderstand. Do you remember David? After he had his affair with Bathsheba, right? The thing that eventually happened to him and his family had such a strong impression on him that even in his old age as the king, when they legitimately gave him a Gave him a damsel to to just you know warm up himself with. Bible says he didn't touch her. Godly sorrow had produced the fruit of repentance. When you fall into something, not when, because hopefully you won't. If you fall into something, or if you fell into something, it is necessary for you not to laugh it off, for you not to write it off, but for you to engage sufficiently with the godly sorrow until it brings that fruit of repentance because that's the guarantee that you, you will not go back right for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death so there's a kind of sorrow that doesn't have its anchor in christ you know the world can actually repent but the, but the missing link in their repentance, right, is that Christ, our righteousness, is not part of that arrangement. So somebody can repent and still commit suicide because even though he has repented, there's no, there's no substitute for his sin, right? His sin is permanent in that sense. There's no substitute for his sin. Nobody can take it on themselves. So they feel the weight of it from, from head to toe. For godly sorrow, it's not like that. We really need to run. The third source of light. So we've, we've looked at spirit-filled preaching of the word. We've looked at godly sorrow. The third source of light that leads to repentance is the riches of God's goodness, right? Which we see in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Um, so um, we did the book of Romans. I won't explain the context of what's happening in chapter 2. But let us read verse 4. It says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? 
Investor says, do you think this old man who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you yourself will escape the judgment of God? So the goodness of God here, because of time, the goodness of God here is not that you are, you know, you are rich or something like this. What is going on here is that he's addressing his people who are living in sin but are not reaping the result of their sin, right? You know, you commit adultery and you can still speak in tongues. In fact, you can still move in power. And when you look at your life and you measure your life by the word of God, the way you're living is not equal to the kind of results that you're getting. <laughs> Paul says that it is the goodness of God that even though you were foolish, even though you made a mistake, you did not receive the full recompense that you were supposed to receive. Has that happened to you before? That you felt, oh, I really messed up. But then when you see the goodness of God in your life, you realize, no, this goodness is not equal to what I should deserve. It says that that's not a license for you to, because that's how a lot of people interpret it. Ah, hmm. So you mean that I can, I can live this kind of lifestyle? and still have manifestations. And then it becomes an excuse to perpetuate iniquity. Paul says, are you not aware that that goodness is supposed to bring you to your knees? So that when you make mistakes and you experience the compassion of God, and you realize that, oh, despite everything that the mercy of God stayed on me, it's supposed to break your heart. It's supposed to cut you to the heart. It's supposed to bring you to the place of repentance. And the final one, the final source of light, which we're not going to look at because of our time, is the long suffering of God. Right? But I wanted to show us by looking at these sources of life, of light, that repentance is a gift of God. It's, it's a gift to be cherished. If anybody comes and tells you that a Christian does not need to repent, the person is asking you to reject the gift of God. And you see, if you reject the gift of God, according to the book of Hebrews, the only thing left is a fearful looking for of judgment. At the end of the day, that's what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. <laughs> Repentance is a gift of God. If, if you need to repent one million times, please do it. Of course, try not to be the kind of person who needs to repent one million times. But if you need to, do not reject the gift of God. It is, it, it, if the Holy Spirit goes as far as to provide light, either through the riches of his goodness or through godly sorrow or through spirit-filled preaching of the word or through the long-suffering of God with you, if the Holy Spirit goes that far to ensure that you have light, accept that gift and repent. If repentance is not given, we cannot come into it, you know. As what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, that you need to pray for the people who resist the gospel. Peradventure, God will grant them repentance. Repentance needs to be given. Right? And repentance, even though God gives you the light, you will need to come into the light for you to experience the, the fruits of repentance. You see, God can give light, but then you do not come into the light. Right. And that's what the entire book of First John actually addresses, at least chapter one of it, that we actually need to walk in the light as he is in the light. 
The light might be available, but don't hide yourself from the light. Walk in the light. I mean, John chapter 3, verse 20. So many scriptures, but let's just watch through them. John 3, verse 20. John the Baptist was speaking, and he said, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed, because light has the ability to expose things, to, man to make things manifest. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. I, I came here to show us that it's possible that God can release light, but then we do not walk in that light. Right? So when God gives us light, for that light not to become darkness, we need to walk in that light. And then the question then is, how do you walk in the light of repentance? The first thing that you have to do is that you have to be shame-free. <laughs> you know, I didn't say shameless because the word is overused, but that's actually the right word, shameless. You have to be shame-free. In accepting the gift of repentance, there must be no shame. There is nothing like, if I've sinned against you, <laughs> you know, or this is, no. You come before God and you are naked before him. If God leads you, which often happens, to repent before another believer, <laughs> there is no shame. Part of the reason why there is no shame is that your, is that your righteousness in Christ is assured. And you want to lay hold of the gift. Imagine if I tell you that, I don't know if you saw the news last this week of the jackpot in the US that was over $1 billion, right? And then imagine if you won such a jackpot and then you say that you, that you feel ashamed to go to the office and tender your ticket and collect the jackpot. What is at stake is too much for shame to be a factor. If what is at stake was five naira, you can say, Kaino, it's too shameful for me to collect five naira. But the righteousness of God that can be applied to you is what is at stake, and you must lose shame. And for many things, to break the power of secrecy, it's, it's often necessary that you actually involve another believer, of course, who is mature, in your process of repentance. But that's how you walk in the light, that you lose shame. Because, friends, the moment you step into light, you'll be exposed. So if you still want to hold on to any sense of dignity, you will be avoiding the light. The next thing when you come into the light is that you must be specific. You know, you don't repent of any sin and you don't repent of every sin. <laughs> you repent of a sin. Right? When the light of God beams on something, you, 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 you handle it specifically. You stay on it. Until, it, until the fruit of repentance is truly birthed in you. When you lose shame and you're specific, what ends up happening is that the sweetness of fellowship is restored to you. John says in First John chapter 1 that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. If in case the sweetness of fellowship has has been removed from your experience with the Holy Ghost, it could be that the protocol of repentance is what you need. You need to beckon on God to send you light. To send you light. Finally, to put it all together, one of the strongest agents, right, by which God sends us light is his word. 
is his word. That's the strongest agent by which God sends us light. It is, it is the agent of divine revelation. You know, the Bible says that the word of God, it rightly divides. It divides. You might be very confused. Does God like this thing? He doesn't like it until you come to the word of God. And it just divides very clearly. And the word of God that divides is not merely the letters, right? That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That, that, that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It's the, it's the spirit-filled proceeding word of God from the written word of God that births life. Psalm 19. Final scripture we'll look at, maybe. Psalm 19. So we spent the first 25 minutes today talking about last week. So sorry that we're a bit over time. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmaments show his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out towards the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Now he's giving us all of this introductory protocol to make a statement that it's rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit is, is to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its heat, nothing hidden from its heat. Now, what he's doing by establishing this foundation is to compare the sun that shines brightly to the word of God. And he has four metaphors for the word of God. The first one is that it is the law of God. He says the law of God is perfect. It, it, it contains the capacity to convert your soul if you do business with it long enough. He also calls it the testimony of God. Ah, we don't have time, but these things mean different things. The law of the Lord, the testimonies of the Lord. He says they are sure and they can make you wise. The statues, that's the decrees of the Lord, are right. Rejoice in the heart. You see, this is what you need to labor to come into. <laughs> the decrees of the Lord. He says they are right. They rejoice the heart. Because one of the, one of the, um, key values of the civilization of the kingdom is the, is the value of joy. And you stumble into joy by the decrees of God. They are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Meaning the judgment here is the perspective of God. You know, some people, when they use their intelligence to reason, they say there's no reason to not have sex before marriage. That's your perspective. But God has a judgment about that specific issue. And the scripture assures you that his judgments are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. And this is where the sweetness of fellowship is restored through repentance. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults.
keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I really felt we should read the whole psalm. But you see that, that the word of God has many, it's, it's a multi-talented or multi-faceted instrument for bringing you light. In fact, the psalmist says that you can't even know where you are wrong. You know, you, you can look at your relationship with God and you're like, mm, it's, it's fine, but it's not really where it should be. You, you, you can't even pinpoint it yourself, but, but the word of God can investigate and find what he calls secret faults. He can also find what he calls presumption sins. Presumption sins are the ones that <laughs> you are just doing, you know, and you don't even know that it's offending God, but you're just doing out of presumption. The word of God is the agent that can locate those issues. And when God sends us light through his word, the light of God enlightens us. But it doesn't just enlighten us, it energizes us. And when we repent, we, can, we, we lay hold of the grace that is in Jesus. So repentance is a gift of God that he gives to us when he gives us light. The reason a pillar of the doctrine of Christ is repentance from dead works is that dead works, like we said in that context, are works that we do to earn our salvation, works whose foundation is not in faith, works whose foundation is not in the principle of substitution. Everything that we do to try to gain acceptance before God is dead in God's estimation. And we also said that dead works refer to their origin and their destiny, works that originates from the fallen creature. You know, Paul lists all of them for us in his letters. Malice, anger, lust, those works, their origin makes them dead, but their destiny, their capacity to produce death also makes them dead. A pillar of our experience in Christ is that we repent. We repent. Because friends, God wants to invade our lives with the kingdom. He wants, the, he wants the brilliance of, the, of his kingdom to so shine in us that it begins to infiltrate every facet of our lives, every facet of our families. And the pillar of repentance is a necessary pillar in our work with God. Whenever it is that your perspective differs from his perspective, whenever it is that you, you find yourself at crossroads, with the will of him who sits on the throne, you repent because the kingdom in you is at stake. Okay, and repentance is, is a beautiful thing to engage with God because the end of it is a sweetness of fellowship. The end of it is, is a position of righteousness and blamelessness before him. My prayer tonight is that God will send us light. He will send us light so that we will not continue to grow up in darkness and that his light will not only enable us to see, but that it will energize us to walk and to run after the truth that is revealed to us 
and that we begin to know the true freedom that God desired for us to know in our walk with him. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.